So as the, the video shared earlier, my last name is Bartlett. And with that being my last name, that meant while I was going to school growing up, assigned seating was my arch nemesis. With the last name Bartlett, that meant I was always in the first or second seat of the first row in every single class I was ever in. And being in the first or second row meant that every single time I got that seat, every person that came in had to make eye contact with me or had to talk to me or they had to walk by and like touch my desk. Or it meant when the teachers needed something, they'd say, okay, who's going to hand this out? Okay, that guy, because he's sitting right in front of me. And this for me was torture. I'm an introvert. And so the fact that people had to walk by my desk alone was torture, but the fact that everyone wanted to like talk and make eye contact was terrifying. And so every time I was placed in the front row of every single class, a part of me died. Uh, being in that first seat is the worst. If you have a last name that's in A's or B's, you get that. It's torture. I don't know why teachers do it to us. Uh, but uh, because I hated this so much, when I eventually got into college, one of the things I vowed to do was never sit in that first seat ever again. Like, for those of you who sit in the first row, we thank you. I wouldn't do it. I don't like sitting in the front row. But so when I got to school, I was like, I'm never going to do this again. And so as a freshman uh, and all the way through uh, my senior year, I would actually get to classes early so I could pick the seat as far away from the teacher as possible. Like, the first, it didn't matter. I went to a really small school. There'd be six kids in the class. It'd be like, one, two, three, four, five, and then Michael all the way in the back corner. And they'd be like, do you want to move up? I'm like, no, I don't want to move up because I don't want you to talk to me. I don't want you to touch my desk. I don't want to even make eye contact with you. Just let me sit in the corner. And, that, and that's who I was. And that was my plan in college. But eventually I got into this class called Jesus in the Gospels, and that plan came back to bite me. So this class, Jesus in the Gospels, was a whole class that was about Jesus' life as seen through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And these four books together, we often call them the Gospels. And so, if, you know, Jesus in the Gospels, it's Jesus' story in these four books. And gospel literally means good news. And so this class was all about Jesus' life and the good news that he brought, the good news that Jesus came to live a perfect life and died to pay the debt with God that our sin creates. And this good news should bring us joy and hope because it's good news to us. And so these four books come together to, to create this good news, and that's what they share with us. Think about it this way, right? There's four different writers that write these four books. Think about it this way. When some of you leave Collective on Sunday and someone asks you what church was like, you might talk about the worship and give detail about the songs we sang and just how incredible our band is. But some of you have asked the same question. You might walk out and say, oh, man, that preacher changed my life forever. Some of you might walk out and say, hey, they had Starbucks, right? And most of you are like, that's actually what I tell everybody. And all of these details are true in some form, um, but they're told through different perspectives. And so when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell stories about Jesus from the perspective of the writer, through the eyes of that storyteller. And this is what reading these four stories are like. And so I'm in this class, and this whole class is dedicated to this, and he starts off, the professor starts off, he says, okay, before we begin, we're going to go through, and everyone's going to name one characteristic or give us one name that we, that we use to, to describe Jesus. And I remember sitting in this class, I was, and I was terrified. So I didn't grow up going to church. By the time I started going to church, I was in middle school. By the time I actually like, cared about what I was doing, is late high school. And so my Bible knowledge was incredibly limited. And so I'm in this class, there's 45 kids, and I'm thinking, if I was sitting in the front row, I get to go first. And I get to say, God. You know, that's easy. But you know what? I chose the last seat in the farthest corner away, and I knew that I was going to be last. And so here I'm in this class, and I'm, and I'm praying to God, God, please let him pick me. I know I'm in the back corner. I know the furthest one away, but please let him start with me. And he didn't. <laughs> he started in the first row in the first seat, the Bartlett seat that I was not in. 
And so he asked the first person, okay, what's one name or one characteristic about Jesus? And the first person says, Christ, uh, which means anointed or chosen one. And I'm thinking, well, maybe he'll go up the column instead of going down the row. He didn't do that. He went down the row. And so the second person says Messiah. Uh, and this is uh, someone who's chosen to lead the world and chosen to save the world. And the third person says Savior, a person who literally saves. And the fourth person says Son of God. And eventually we get to the end of the row, and he starts swinging back the other way. And at that point, I realize if we continue to go this way the whole time, I am absolutely last. And the reality is at that point, freshman year of college, I didn't know 45 words or characteristics that would describe Jesus. So I'm panicking. And I'm watching these kids go down the road and someone's like, Redeemer, which is someone who buys something back, or Lion and the Lamb, Alpha, Alpha and Omega, the things like, okay, I've heard these before. They've been in songs. I've heard them in sermons. But by the time I got to like the 10th kid, I was like, I'm tapped out. I literally don't know what I'm going to say right now. And so I'm like running through my mind and I'm like, okay, I know like three Bible verses, so none of them give me anything. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, how would I describe Jesus when it gets, when it gets to me? And eventually it goes down the road back and finally it <laughs> ends on me. And I remember watching this happen thinking, this is what like looking at a train would be like if it was slowly going to crush you. And I was like, that's me. I'm going to be crushed by this train in front of all these students I'm in class with. And eventually he gets to me, and the professor stares at me, and he's waiting. And I look at him, and I, and I really am just grasping at anything. I look and I say, man. And he pauses, and he kind of smiles, and it feels like about 20 minutes. And he goes, nice. And then he goes and starts the lesson. Over the next few weeks, we're actually going to talk about Jesus as a man. And while at the time it was like a throw, I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to say this answer. The reality is a lot of times when we think about God, we think about Jesus, we think about him as God. Or maybe we think about the spiritual side when he was performing miracles. But a lot of times we forget that he was also a man. And so over the next few weeks, as we go through this Jesus' series, each characteristic that we learn about Jesus is a characteristic that he exemplifies as a human being. And it's a characteristic that, honestly, we, in our own lives, should replicate. And so each week, we're going to be in the book of John. And so we're going to be in John 1 today. Next week, we'll be in John 2, John 3, and so forth. And what's really cool, too, and this is a quick plug for our small groups that meet during the week called Collectives, if you're ever here on a Sunday, and you're like, man, like that, that topic was interesting to me, that was hard, or maybe you liked it, and you want to talk more about it, our collectives that meet during the week go back over the same text that we talk about on Sunday. And so right now, while, while we're talking about this on Sunday, our small groups that meet during the week are also going to be going through John as well. And the reason why we do that is because we don't expect you guys to hear what I say and leave thinking, okay, this is absolutely right. Our hope is that eventually you crack open the Bible and you read it in a safe place where you can ask questions, where you can push back, and where you can have conversations. And so if that's something that you're interested in, on your connection card, check off Join a Collective. We'll follow up with you this week. We'd love for you to be a part of that conversation and kind of continue what happens on Sunday. And so we're going to be in the book of John. So let's talk about John for a second. Why is he important? Why did he write a book? And so John was a follower of Jesus along with his brother James. John often in his own writing called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved which if I wrote a book, of, a book of the Bible, I would also call myself the disciple that Jesus loved. And that's, that's part of what he did. He just called himself, he's like, Jesus, who Je or John, who, who Jesus loved. Like every single time he writes, uh, because he wants people to know, like, I'm here, I'm doing this, and, and Jesus loves me. And so he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and the reality is John is one of the, the three disciples that are closest to Jesus. So Jesus has 12 kind of main followers, and inside that group there's three, Peter, James, and John. 
And so he's actually really close to Jesus, and he writes from a perspective where he has a strong relationship with Jesus. Many people believe that John went on to write the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. A lot of people think he wrote uh, also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which happens later on in the New Testament. So John isn't just some guy. He is someone who spent a significant amount of time with Jesus. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He spent more time with Jesus than most people did. And because of that, John wrote about it. And he's had a major influence on the church today. So John, in this book, shares an incredible account of Jesus' life through his perspective, through what he saw. It wasn't folklore. It wasn't passed down from family member to family member, and eventually he wrote it down. He writes about his own experiences with Jesus. And so we're going to be in John 1. Uh, And if you have a Bible with you, you have a smartphone, uh, open it up, John 1, uh, or it's going to be on the screen so you can follow along as well. And we're going to start in John 1, verse 1. And this is what John writes about Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through, all thing, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. It's like kind of a tongue twister, right? Like you're reading through that and you're like, what is he saying? But what John is writing is that in the beginning, the beginning of the world, he's saying that Jesus was with God. Because the reality we believe as followers of Jesus, that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are all one. And so even though Jesus hadn't come as a man yet, he was with God when the world began. And John's using this to introduce Jesus. He's kind of using this in his his book to give credibility to Jesus as God before he starts talking about him as man. John continues in John 1, 4 through 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And John's saying Jesus is life, and he's light to all mankind. He's pure. He brings hope. And Jesus' light is so good and so pure that darkness can't overcome it. That no matter what sin or evil or bad things happen in the world, Jesus' light still shines through. Then he continues, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now John decided in the middle of this really cool thing, I'm going to talk about myself for a little bit. And so that's what he does. John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. I'm awesome. That's what he's saying. And he says, he came as a witness. Again, he's also writing about himself in the third person, which is like incredible. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And these verses are kind of, it's just John. It kind of sums up John. John is saying, hey, I witnessed this light. I saw this light. I'm not the light, but I'm gonna, I'm, I, my goal is so that other people know who Jesus is through me. He kind of interjects that all through the Bible when he talks about himself. He likes to kind of build up his own credibility as well. He continues, John 1, 9 through 11. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was made through him. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And John's saying, even though Jesus was with God when the world was created, even though he was a part of that, the world will still struggle to believe. The world will still struggle to accept him. And the world will push him away. And what's incredible about what John writes over 2,000 years ago 
is that that's a reality today as well. If some of you were being honest, you would say that you are pushing Jesus away, that you struggle, that you're skeptical, that you're doubtful. This is a place we say you can belong before you believe, and this is the right place to be to do that. The reason why John writes that, because it's recognizing that, man, some people are going to struggle with this. If you're one of those people, the question I want you to think about today is, what would it take for you to recognize him, to receive him, to see that he brings that light? John continues, John 1, 12 through 13. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So John also recognizes, yes, some people will push him away, but some people won't. Some people will accept that he is the son of God. Some people will recognize that he's the light, that he is hope. And some people will recognize that he is the son of God. When John talks about becoming children of God, it's alluding to this idea of inheritance. And this is something that you'll see throughout the Bible, and actually you'll see it throughout the four Gospels, is, is they will write about an inheritance that we receive when we choose to accept God and we choose to follow him. That inheritance is eternity in heaven. And John's saying, hey, when you choose to accept Jesus, you're one of his children, and there's an inheritance. There's a, there's a portion of that where you get to spend eternity with him. And so those first 13 verses, everything John is doing is setting up what's coming. And he's setting up this, this God portion of Jesus. He's setting up the deity of Jesus. He's building credibility. Yes, he is God, but also this. And this is what he says, and this is what we're going to focus on today in John 1, 14 through 17. And this is what he writes. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We skip ahead one verse because John talks about himself again. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John's saying the word, or Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That he became a man and he spent time on earth that he became a human being just like us. It's one of those reasons why we talk openly about brokenness here at Collective is because that's not a feeling that we just have. It's a feeling that Jesus understands as well. And John writes that he's not only fully human, we know he's fully God, but he's also full of grace and truth. And when John talks about the law, what he's referencing is the first five books of the Bible. These were the five books of the Old Testament, which is how the Jewish people decided, like, these are the rules for us living our lives. That's truth. That's how we walk in alignment with God. These were all written by Moses, and it's kind of how they decided, this is how we follow God. And before Jesus, the world was full of truth. But when Jesus came and lived life on this earth, he brought grace and truth to the world. So this week, what we're talking about is the fact that Jesus is grace and truth. Now, grace is getting something better than we deserve. Truth is God's teaching. It's a direction for our life. It's how we live in alignment with him. And Jesus is full of both of those. He's fully grace and fully truth. Romans three twenty three through 24 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The truth is that we've all sinned, that we all walk out of alignment with God, and we all shall fall short of his glory. But grace is that we are justified freely through Jesus who redeemed us, through Jesus who paid our debt. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Truth is that our sin creates a debt that we can't pay. It separates us from God, and that's a punishment that we can't pay, and the punishment for that is death. But grace is the fact that Jesus will pay that price for us. That he came to earth as a man, died on a cross, rose from the grave, because we couldn't pay that. He sets us free through that. Truth is that Jesus is the only way to God. Grace is that Jesus died so that every single person could spend eternity with him. Truth is that sin is real. It's real. We walk out of alignment with God. Sin is real. But grace is that Jesus will give us endless second chances if we choose to follow him. The first thing that we learn from this story in regards to the fact that Jesus is grace and truth is that he's a perfect balance of both. He is fully grace and fully truth. And this is really important. Jesus isn't heavy on grace. Jesus isn't heavy on truth. He's a perfect balance of both. He's a perfect balance of grace and truth. In Christmas of 2006, uh, the most popular Christmas item that year was a Nintendo Wii. And on Black Friday, there were stories about people camping out for days at a time in order to get one of these things. There was like a stampede in a Walmart in Arkansas somewhere. Uh, But this was like the hot item. And because of that, most parents who were trying to get this, or I guess adults, because I bought one as well, uh, who were trying to get a Nintendo Wii, didn't get them around Christmas. And in January of 2007, a radio station in Sacramento uh, held a competition because they got a hold of a Nintendo Wii, and they held a competition, and they decided that if if a contestant made it through this task, they would win this prize. But actually, at the end, um, there was tragedy. The radio station hosted a contest that was called Hold Your Wii for a Wii, and five contestants would drink a gallon of water every hour, And the person who held out from going to the bathroom the longest would win the Nintendo Wii. And during the contest, a woman named Jennifer Strange made it three hours before giving up. And during that time, she drank over two gallons of water and ended up in second place. After going home, she ended up calling into work because she didn't feel well. And a few hours later, she was found dead as a result of water intoxication. Drinking too much water in a short time span is called hyponatremia. What happens is there's too much water and not enough salt, and your brain swells and you die. When the radio station was in court and they were talking to the DJs about it, they kept saying over and over and over again, we thought water was good for you. We didn't think it could be dangerous. And the reality is this, water is good for you. But if you drink too much water, you will die. If you don't drink enough water, you will die. If you don't have the right balance in your life with water, (laughs) you will die. And the right balance is key. And when Jesus talks about grace and truth, he's not grace heavy, he's not truth heavy. He's the right balance of both. 
Our tendency as people is to want to be all grace or all truth. We don't really want to find the balance of both. But too much truth leads to a God that is unattainable and a life without hope. And too much grace leads to a life without standards. And eventually you end up directionless and not knowing, am I doing the right thing? Am I going the right direction? What is my purpose here? And this is why it matters that Jesus is perfectly both, that he's the right balance, because that's what we need in our lives. The second thing we learn from this story in regard to Jesus being grace and truth is that Jesus is the perfect balance of both grace and truth because we need a perfect balance of both grace and truth in our lives. When Jesus lived and he walked on this earth as a man, there are countless stories of when Jesus showed us what grace and truth look like. When he showed us how to approach people that way. And one of my favorite stories that, that kind of sums this up is a story about a woman that's caught in adultery. And this isn't the only time Jesus offers grace and truth. It's just one of the best examples that we have. And again, it's written by John, so it's not just some guy. It's a guy that saw this happen. And so we're going to be in John 8. We're going to read this story together. This is what John writes. He said, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. At this point in Jesus' life, he had performed some miracles. People started to see there's something different about this guy. And, and so on this specific day, Jesus is teaching, and he's in the temple. So the best way to think about it is he's at church. And he's sitting down. He's trying to teach these people about him, about grace and truth. And when he started to teach, in John 8, 3, this is what it says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. Now the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are people who knew the Old Testament, the first five books specifically, front and back. Their life and their career and everything was dedicated to knowing all the rules. This was their well-being. This was like their, their pride. And so what they did is because they knew all the rules, they were essentially the morality police. And that's what they did. And these people, these teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they found this woman, they caught her in adultery, and they brought her in front of Jesus. And these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, when you read these stories about Jesus, you find out that these are people that are heavy-handed when it comes to truth. And they bring this woman to stand in front of Jesus. And Jesus just isn't out in the middle of nowhere. He's in the temple. There are people waiting for him to teach. And these Pharisees feel like we need to bring her in front of all these people just to talk about what she's done. I can imagine how she felt, how embarrassing that was for her. The anger and the shame and the guilt that she felt that not only are these people <laughs> pulling her out of her own home, but purposely putting her in front of other people to embarrass her. On a side note, one thing that I really don't like about this story, to be honest, is that if the woman was caught, caught in adultery, where's the guy? And I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but the reality is, that's how you know these Pharisees and these teachers of the law are heavy-handed on truth, because they find the woman, they say, okay, we're going to punish you, but guy, you can go somewhere else. Because all they care about is truth, and all they care about is punishment. John continues when he writes this. Uh, they brought her in front of the, the crowd and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, 
or the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Now, this sounds terrible. This sounds awful. This is not something that we would look at today and go, yes, that's appropriate. But during that time, they were correct. The law of Moses did say that if someone was caught in adultery, that they would be stoned. And their punishment was death. But Jesus' response is what shows us how we respond. And Jesus' response is what shows us what grace and truth look like. John continues, They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, really quick, a lot of times we read that and we think the trap is whether or not he's going to offer grace or truth. Like, we'll read that and we go, oh, well, is he going to give her grace or is he going to give her truth? And that's a trap. But that's actually not the trap they're setting him up with. The actual trap is during that time, uh, the whole, where J Jesus was, was over Roman rule. And the only people that could stone someone to death were the Romans. And so ultimately, they thought Jesus is either going to stone her to death or he's going to stone her to death. And the question is, if he does, is he following the law or is he following Roman rule? And that's the trap they try to get him in. Are you following God or are you, are you following the government? But they didn't expect Jesus' answer. The story continues. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. This is one of those mic drop Jesus moments. Right? They're waiting for an answer. Ultimately, all they want to do is, is hurt and kill this woman. But that's not what Jesus gives them. And the reality is when Jesus says, says this, anyone who is without sin cast the first stone, the only person that has that right is Jesus. He's the only person who's perfect, who has no sin. He can throw the rocks, but he doesn't. Instead, he stoops back down and writes in the sand. Now, a lot of people believe that in that moment, this is just straight inference, they're, they're pulling this in, this is actually what the Bible says, it's just a thought, but a lot of people believe he was actually writing out the sins of those people. I think Jesus was writing, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and so he continues to write, and this is what, what John continues to, to write in, in John 8, starting in verse 9. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. And Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. And so at some point, these accusers realize that they're not perfect. And they begin to walk away. And I don't know why the older ones walked away first. Maybe it's because they realized they had more opportunities in their life to sin. Maybe they're just smarter. But they set the tone, and they started to leave first, and eventually the younger ones went as well. And when Jesus straightened up, he was no longer kneeling. He was no longer looking at the ground. But instead, he looked at this woman. And he says, I don't condemn you anymore. Now go and stop sinning. The reality is the law did say that she could be stoned to death. And if Jesus was truth and truth only, that would have been her punishment. But also if Jesus was grace and grace only, he would have said, eh, 
it's not that big of a deal. I'm okay if you're okay. It really doesn't matter. But what Jesus says is, I don't condemn you, which is grace. He says, now go on and stop sinning, which is truth. It wasn't one or the other. But Jesus offered fully grace and fully truth because that's what this woman needed to turn her life around. She didn't need just truth. She didn't need just grace. She needed both. Now, this is just me, and uh, I don't know, I, I can't read and figure out where this came from or if this is even a good idea, so you guys are going to hear it anyways. But I think there's something incredibly important about the fact that it's grace and truth and not truth and grace. I know for me, I, like I've been going to church for a little while, I've been doing this job for a little while, and most of the time when I talk about it, I talk about it being truth and grace. But the reality is when John writes it, John who is way smarter than I am when it comes to Jesus, he writes it as grace and truth. And I think the reason why this matters, this is personally my opinion, and I think the reason why this matters is because grace should come first. And I think that as, as John spent time with Jesus, and he saw these stories, and he met these people, and he saw how Jesus handled it, he realized that when grace comes first, truth will follow, and truth will be heard. And I think he realizes that if truth comes first, we might not ever hear about grace. And I think the way Jesus did it is incredibly important. It's grace first. It's I don't condemn you. And you can imagine at that moment, after being condemned and being brought in public, she's going to listen to whatever Jesus says, and then he follows up by saying, okay, now don't sin anymore. And because of that, she walked away with a direction, with hope, with light. This is exactly what we need in our lives. I know for me, I need grace and truth. I need grace and truth when it comes to my marriage. I need grace and truth when it comes to being a dad. I need grace and truth when it comes to being a friend. I need grace and truth when it comes to leading this church. We need both in our relationships, in our priorities, in our finances. We need grace and truth, and that's what Jesus offers. The last thing that we learn from this story is that Jesus offers it, but it's something that we should offer people as well. Now, some people will come to Collective, and they'll spend some time with us, and they'll think we're too heavy on grace. Uh, that Collective is too open about brokenness. Uh, if you were here last week, you might think that. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I would, I would definitely encourage you our, to check out the sermon. It's online and podcast. Um, we shared about brokenness at Collective very openly, and that's who we are. And some people might think that we're too heavy on grace because of that. And some people will come to collect, and they'll think we're too heavy on truth, that we talk too much about sin, that we care too much about living a life in alignment with what God teaches. But the reality is we want to be equally both because that's what Jesus offers us, and that's what we want to show this community. And so as a church, we strive to be both, even when it's difficult, a few weeks ago, I got to hang out with a friend of mine named Andrew that I've known for a few years. 
Uh, he's a former teacher that recently uh, stopped teaching and actually started working in a church. And he's been, been in church for about six months. It's his first time ever working in a church. And so I asked him how it was going. And, and he was incredibly honest. He actually said uh, that he was struggling. He shared a story with me about a mutual friend that we both have who's been struggling for a long time with drug and alcohol addiction. He shared a story about our friend Nick. And he talked about how Nick will have really good months and then like a switch, he'll start spiraling. And last week, he hit rock bottom. My friend got a phone call around dinner time. It was Nick's wife who was hysterical because Nick had relapsed and she couldn't find him. And Andrew, who's been walking alongside him for a long time, knew exactly where he was. He's always in the same place when he begins to lose control. And so Andrew went out and grabbed Nick and brought him home. And so I asked Andrew, how did, how did that feel? And he said he was furious. He was furious because it wasn't the first time. He was furious because he could see how he was hurting his wife. He was, he was furious because he was hurting his friends. He was furious because he was hurting everyone around him. But for some reason, Nick wasn't changing. But the main reason why Andrew was, was furious because all he wanted to do was smack Nick around with a bunch of truth and leave Grace at the door. And the reality is a lot of times we feel that way. When it's our friend spiraling out of control, when it's our friend or our family making bad decisions, we want to be heavy on truth. But there are times in our life when we're the ones spiraling, when we're the one going down that wrong way, and that's when we want grace. But Jesus, who lived a life as man, lived a life full of both. And we get it. It's hard to show grace and truth. It's hard to balance them out. But the example that Jesus sets when he became flesh and dwelt among us was that we need a balance of that in our lives. We need a balance of grace and truth. And that's what we should be offering to other people. And that's the type of church that we hope to be. Because we see through story after story after story that our lives change and other people's lives change when grace and truth both exist equally. Let's pray. God, thank you that, um, God, thank you that you give us grace and truth. God, we mess up. Uh, we know that. Um, sometimes we don't. Uh, but God, we know uh, that we're not perfect and that we're going to make mistakes. And God, we're so thankful that you will give us endless second chances. But God, we're also thankful uh, for truth that we know the direction we need to be going in. We know how to treat people. We know that we're called to love God and love people. And we know those things. And God, we're so thankful that we know where we should be going. And God, as we, we try to figure out how to do both, God, we pray that we continue to receive both from you. And God, that's how we treat our neighbors and our friends and our family. How we treat this community. And ultimately, God, that's, that's who we hope to be as a church, full of both, both grace and truth.
God, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.